Welcome to the Gate 7 International Podcast. This is episode 24 and midweek series number 11. My name is Peter Thompson. I am here with Adi Burubasis, Lambros Sirmos, and our special guest for today, David Mooney of The Athletic. David, how are you doing? I'm not too bad. Thank you. You guys well? We're doing all right. We're doing all right, all things considered. Uh, obviously, the Olympiakos result didn't go the way we wanted. We'll get into that game today. We are three Americans, so we're currently living the election, which is all I'm going to say about that. We don't need to get into that mess right now, but <laughs> I know Lam Lambro, as a political science student, is, is stressing about that, but he made the time to be here and talk football with us, so we appreciate that. Anyway, we will also cover some Pauk and Ike-related stuff for those interested in that at the end of the episode today. They've got Europa League games coming up tomorrow, or tomorrow for us as we're recording this. But before we do that, let's just get into some quick announcements and news. Uh, we do have Bob Beans coming for our next episode. He is featuring for his second time. That episode will air on November 9th. We will be discussing just in general Olympiacos so far, and we will also be previewing the upcoming international break. Our favorite part of the podcast is covering the ethnic key, as you know very well. Don't forget to visit threelessworld.com for more English articles and information about Olympiacos. After that, we will have an episode coming out on Thursday, November 12th, featuring a correspondent from the Pauk Talk podcast. That is a new podcast in English about Pauk. You can follow them on Instagram at Pauk underscore talk. And we are looking forward to having that discussion as well. After that, we have our next episode coming out on Monday, November 16th, featuring the Super Greek, who you can follow at the Super Greek. He'll be joining us to discuss the international break, as well as the performances of the Ethniki against Cyprus and Moldova. Our next special guest, we will have a quick return from Antoni from Hellas Football. You can catch his first episode where we discuss the Panathinaikos Olympiakos rivalry as well as some of the European games in the midweek. That one is, I think, episode 22, so a couple episodes back. And we will be doing pre-match with Antoni for the Derby of Eternal Enemies between Olympiakos and Panathinaikos. That episode will be available on Friday, November 20th. Additionally, if you haven't listened to it yet, our biggest episode with our biggest guest ever, uh, no offense, David, we, we did have a, a big Greek legend, Stelios Yanakopoulos, <laughs> On, uh, If you'd like to listen to that episode, it is up on all of our platforms now as well. It's a great one, and we think you'll really enjoy. And lastly, I want to say thank you to our sponsor, Piraeus International Incorporated. Piraeus International has been importing and exporting cargo for companies and individuals for over 40 years. They can assist you in importing olive oil, marble, or any other goodies from Greece. They can also assist in exporting, whether you have one box or a full household of items that need to be sent over. Check them out at PiraeusIntl.com, spelled like the port in Greece, and give them a call at 410-675-4696. And getting into some news, Costas Fortunis did not travel with Olympiakos to the Manchester City game. He was obviously not in the team, didn't play. It's a bit of a dodgy situation with a lot of Greeks commenting on this. This has happened before in some ways against Arsenal last year. Remember that he had a apparent dispute with coach Pedro Martins uh, and did not travel to London to play Arsenal. What we know is that Martins indicated Fortunis could not practice potentially due to some injury. And as a result, he did not bring him to Manchester City 
Lambro, what are your thoughts on this situation? Yeah, Peter, this is a really interesting story. And this is something that I think has been developing for a while now. We've been having problems between Fortunis and Martins. Of course, Fortunis hasn't been starting a lot. I'll, I'll say journalist Batbadelis Diamantopoulos, I think. I think that was him. Uh, had a podcast episode that actually discussed the whole issue. He went really hard against Martins and saying Fortunis the best Greek footballer. He should be playing. And it's really getting toxic, I feel, in the, the community about Fortunis and what his role in Olympiakos will be. And there's worries that maybe even Marinakis, of course, the owner of Olympiakos, may need to step in. An interesting comment, too, I read um, Pep Guardiola, actually, the, the manager of Manchester City, said that he was actually really disappointed that he didn't see Fortunis play for Olympiakos uh, this European game, which was, I thought, a really interesting comment and really nice of him to say, of Fortunis, who, of course, we're big fans of. The interesting thing for me is, so right after that podcast, uh, Gavros.gr put out an article talking about how a lot of this news about Fortunis and Martins is just propaganda, and it's just being put out there to kind of create schisms or rifts within the team. And it's just something to take the attention away from the national team's lack of use of Fortunius. So part of me wonders if this is kind of getting overblown. I'm still concerned only because Martins is usually really honest at, at some of these like press conferences. So when he says that Fortunius didn't come, oh, he and he wasn't injured or doesn't indicate that he was injured, there's got to be something else going on in the background. You know, we know in the past Fortunius has gotten upset when he hasn't played or if he's been subbed off, let's say, prematurely. So we know that this has happened in the past. I really have no idea what to think here. Uh, it's all conjecture at this point. It's moments like these that remind you how hard it is to trust anything from the Greek press, really. But it definitely is an interesting situation, especially uh, in the Arsenal situation last year, or I guess in early 2020, it was a bit more clear that Fortunis was upset. I think Martins came out and said, basically, no one is bigger than Olympiakos, and that is why he didn't get to come. And now it's a little bit more, I guess, hidden from people. So it's certainly an interesting situation. We could talk about it for a really long time, honestly, if we wanted to, but uh, we have other things to get into, and maybe we will have more details for you, maybe with Bob when we record over the weekend. In other news, uh, our winger Lazar Ranjejovic has been called up to the Serbian national team for the first time in preparation for next weekend's international friendlies. Congratulations to him. We'll be maybe a bit critical of his performance against Manchester City, but still congratulations to him. And some news concerning Pauk that we will talk about more later. PSV Eindhoven in the Netherlands are there having a bit of a coronavirus spike with nine players testing positive. They've also had four injuries, so they're going to be missing a grand total of 13 players. A lot of youth players featured for them over the weekend, so maybe a good break for Pauk. Obviously, we hope everyone with PSV is safe, and we are glad that Bruma has been loaned out to Olympiakos instead because he's doing well for us. Yeah, that's true. I, another coronavirus point I'll make, Peter, is um, we're looking like we're entering lockdown in Greece, so it's still unclear how the football is going to be impacted by that, but we'll keep reading the government statements and keep you guys up to date if anything changes. 
just for uh, just comparison, because obviously the UK, uh, where I am, is uh, we're, we're heading as we speak right now into a second lockdown. The football is completely exempt, so that it will carry on and will continue and, and just will push on through come what may. While shops, uh, non-essential shops are closing, uh, restaurants, pubs, all that sort of thing are not open. But uh, the football is, as far as we can tell, is just going to plough on through regardless. If, if teams have players catch COVID and, and uh, isolating, it's just kind of, it's going to be treated as it's tough luck. It's, it's what we have to deal with this season. Well, assuming they can do so in a safe enough way, we hope that we can keep watching football, obviously. I wouldn't be that upset if they cancelled international breaks because of the lockdown for multiple reasons, but we'll see what happens. Uh, I certainly hope that the Greek Super League doesn't get shut down. That being said, I don't want to talk about coronavirus too much. We obviously know what's going on, but let's get into the Manchester City game. So for those who aren't familiar, it finished 3-0. Most of the game, it was 1-0. An early goal from Ferran Torres, his third goal in the Champions League, put City up. A bit of a sloppy start for Olympiacos. And then they started to look a lot better. A couple key changes at halftime really improved the team. And eventually, in the 80th minute, City got their second goal. And after that, you could really tell that Olympiacos had given up. City would go on to score a third. Tough result for Olympiacos. Obviously, City are a great team with a lot of talented players and a wonderful manager. So it's a result that we had to expect a loss. I predicted 3-1. Lambro predicted 4-1. I think, Adi, did you predict a draw? I did. I was being way too optimistic. Deep down, I knew it was going to be awful. But <laughs> uh, yes, I was the 1-1. Well, there were some positives and some negatives. I think some players, for me, Bruma had a really nice performance. Uh, I wanted to see more of him over the weekend but I understand he's still getting worked in after the early sub against Apollon Smyrnas in a game that we won. But he looked great for pieces against City, especially coming out the gate in the second half. We looked really threatening. But once again, it's the same issues that this team has had. Where are the goals? Uh, both just from the strikers and more generally, where are the goals? El Arabi, we have talked about at length, and there was the beginning of the year, we, we were kind of concerned about him being out of form and potentially being in a slump. Then there was a bit of the year when we had proclaimed he's back. Now I think we have to start asking ourselves, was he really back? Uh, because he doesn't really look to be in form. And I mean, I might be overreacting, but he is over 30. You got to be wondering if age is just catching up with him. I'm not really sure what to think of it. Well, I don't think your worries are unfounded because right now with Champions League, we don't have a lot of, let's say, standouts. So we're not leading, we don't have any players, we're not leading in a lot of metrics across the board. But we are leading in one, and El Arabi is the leader of that metric. If you want to guess what that is, listeners, that's rhetorical, it's offsides. Before the Manchester City game, El Arabi was offsides nine times in Champions League. He leads the Champions League at offsides. It's, it's horrendous. I, I guarantee that's only because Gabriel Jesus has been injured for the start of this Champions League campaign. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm surprised that's Alvaro Morata's not up there. It's, but this is a complaint we've had about El Arabi in the past. Last year, in his first season, I complained nonstop. There was a time where El Arabi was averaging two and a half offsides a game in the beginning of last season. It was dreadful. Now, he did work on it. 
but this season it's like it's coming it's coming back again and we've lost any amount of effectiveness from him he was lights out a star in the qualifiers coming into champions league now we're in the group stage and we're seeing a completely different player the thing for me with El Arabi is, and this is something we've known from watching him, he's not a youthful player. He's not a super quick or athletic player. You see him try to make those runs behind the defender, you know, like you see quick strikers doing, you know, Mbappe just getting behind that defender and getting ahead and having a one-on-one with the goalkeeper. El Arabi cannot beat most defenders to the ball, especially Champions League defenders unless he's offside. And we've seen a couple times in the City game, he tried to have one of those moves where he would try to get in behind the defender, but either he's offside or the defender's just beating him to that ball. And that's just not the striker he is. When he's in form, he's the striker where if the ball is at his feet and he shoots it, he's going to score. You know, finishing is what he is best at. But we're not even seeing him get a lot of touches in the box right now, partially owing to the fact that he is putting himself in offside positions a lot. But... Just in general, he's not getting a lot of touches in the box. And when he is, he's sometimes taking a little bit too much time for me. He's not just shooting it. Now, I know that's all I test, and we'll get into the analytics later, but that's mostly what I see from him. Yeah, and going off El Arabi, I wanted to ask David, what, what did you think of the game overall, and what did you think about Olympiacos? Because I know we were extremely disappointed in the first 30 minutes. Like That wasn't the team that we have seen the past two years, and it was just kind of... We understood the quality that City had, but it was quite tough to see like how poor we were that first 30 minutes, I guess. Maybe for, even, for, I'll just say first half, you know, it was poor. So I, I'd like to hear what you thought of the game as well as what you thought of Olympiacos. It's, I think it's a tough one because City are not playing well at the moment. And I don't mean that in a kind of, we like City should be battering teams left, right and centre every week because other teams have the right to come to the Etihad and play however they want to play sort of thing. But City have, they've spent this season effectively not creating enough chances and the chances they create missing them. So to walk away from a from a, a, what ultimately was, you're right, the, the first 80 minutes or so, it was, you know, Olympiacos were well in the game at, at, at 1-0. So to walk away from that with a 3-0 win is, is actually quite against the run of how the season has been going for City, really. More, like uh, That game, you'd either expect it to be a one-all draw or City scrape it 1-0 in the end. And we all come away from it and think, well, they played all right, but they weren't great. And it, you're just kind of waiting for them to fire on all cylinders. Um, I thought Olympiacos did a very, very good job of frustrating City in that sense because um, I, I'll get on to one of the problems that City have uh, shortly in that that they have, uh, that, that stops them creating chances. But I thought Olympiacos defended particularly very well in that first kind of 80 or so minutes. Um, and then ultimately, I, I guess it was it was tiredness, it was the overall, the, the work rate that they have to get through to, to keep City quiet. The issue was that City play with this system this season where they've they've got inverted wingers. So they've got a right footer on the left coming inside, a left footer on the right coming inside. And when you do that and you don't have any width from the fullbacks, it's very easy to sit, you know, stick a five-man defence in there and there's no space for anybody to move into. So I thought Olympiakos got the got the tactics kind of spot on for that first kind of 45 minutes or so. I mean, I know you're not impressed with the way that they, that, that they attacked the game. 
maybe there was an opportunity there to go for it a bit more and put City under a bit more pressure, especially with the defence being John Stones and, and Nathan Ake. Stones obviously under pressure at the moment. Ake, a new signing, uh, just back from injury as well. I, I guess you could have pushed a few more men forward, but I didn't. I, I, at half time, I wasn't particularly thinking this game's done and dusted and it's in the bag. I was thinking, you know, that all it takes is one breakaway here and suddenly we could be under pressure. One comment you made is just how Olibiakos looked almost dead tired, I guess, or very tired at the end of the game. And that's something that I saw immediately. You know, you, you may have noticed how many old players we have with Rafinha, Jolebas. Valbuena, El Arabi, like these are old players. And like I, I know the Greek media doesn't want to comment about this and Olympiakos fans want to look past this, but there was not a lot of youth on that field and there wasn't a lot of pace on that field for the first 45 minutes. Andreas Buhalakis, who was our captain, is so incredibly slow. I don't think the level of football that City play, he can keep up with his pace. I just don't think... He has the close control. He has the dribble or the pass under pressure to play in that system. He has no way of getting out of pressure. And I think we were definitely exposed there. And there were moments where Kyle Walker, who I know is a very pacey player, just like bolted right past our players. And Jose Julebas was just like left for stranded and he whipped in a ball like one or two times. And it, it was just... It was kind of shocking to watch because these are problems we know we have, but it was just exposed so well. I don't think we were exposed that much against Porto or Marseille. So it, it was a bit shocking for, for, for me, at least, to see. It was definitely something I was concerned about before going into the game, only because if you've noticed, when we run this 4-3-3, there's not a lot of movement. And I, when I mean movement, off the ball movement. And we saw that in the first half. We would have guys with the ball, and there was nobody moving into space. And when you're playing against a team that employs a high press, or at least we'll say a higher press than us, then you have to have guys moving into space to help alleviate that pressure. Now, part of the reason why I was a little bit optimistic and why I thought maybe we could get a 1-1 steal out of this, there were some data points that I took down comparing City's current season to this season. And this was actually something that Femis Gesaris in Greece actually tweeted out ahead of time. I was super upset because I did all this work and I was like, oh, it was a great find. But you, you guys will find this pretty interesting. So comparing 2019-2020 to this season, Manchester City, on average, less pressures in the defensive third per game. Uh, 31 per game last year, 28 this year. Pressures in the midfield, 57 last year per game, 44 this year. Pressures in the final third, or I should say in the in the offensive third, 44 last year, 34 this year. Total pressures overall, of course, decline. They're averaging 11 key passes per game this year versus 15 last year. Passes into the penalty box as well, 16 last year, 11 this year. And overall, averaging 640 passes a game last year, 594 uh, this year before going into the game. I find that. I, I, it's it's both surprising and not surprising. If you like, if you watch the way that City have played, certainly in the Premier League this season, um, that doesn't really surprise me. The, the 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 lack of offensive pressure. What does surprise me though is that I, it feels like certainly the setup. It, it, it's kind of built to be able to do that though. It's like like the, the 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 great City teams, the two great seasons that Guardiola's had, uh, seventeen eighteen and eighteen nineteen. His team was built on just penning the other team back and, and, and 
consistently pressing them and pressing them and pressing them, winning the ball back high up. Last season, with David Silver in the team, it became obvious at, at various points. Silver could not do the legwork that was needed to, to kind of do that. But if you take, you can't just drop David Silver. He's the, he's the best player the club has ever had. So you can't, you can't just take him out. So the, the setup was kind of, well, we're not going to press in the same way. We're going to press in a way that means that David Silver doesn't quite have to run as far as he used to have to run. And it didn't really work. And it especially didn't work when you take Fernandinho out of the midfield and put him as a centre-back. And, you know, you have Rodri Gundogan, who, who hasn't really worked together. But now that David Silva's gone this season, I kind of thought, well, in my head, it makes sense that they kind of go back to the press that used to work so well for them and, and be able to do it that way. Um, so I'm surprised that the numbers don't stack up to say that they are doing that. But equally, when you watch City this season... You can see it sometimes, like like the, the game that they, they, they played at West Ham, there was times when, when Bernardo Silva was pressing and then looking round and thinking, well, where the hell is everybody else? Like, like there's no point in going on your own because you just get passed around. Yeah, no, I, I definitely see what you mean. I, I will say this, though. Despite the fact that the press, you know, we'll say the overall press is kind of relaxed. And when we say relaxed, you know, it's not that much of a relaxation. Like when you're pressing in each third, maybe a few times less per game, like, okay, it's not, you know, the midfield I'd say is the big one, but it hasn't really changed how dominant City are. You know, in 2017, 2018, 2018, 2019, both those seasons, teams were averaging 34, 35% possession per game against City. This year it's 37%. I mean, are you going to split hairs over an extra 2%? No, probably not. Because the concern with the high press as well, and we experienced this when Ernesto Valverde coached us uh, almost 10 years ago, and the high press fatigues players. Fatigue on a consistent basis also leads to injury. So I think maybe drawing that back a little bit, one is a concern for fatigue and, and two for injury. But I would still say overall that the press in general is successful for Manchester City. Now, as we begin to dive into some of the analytics, uh, we teased some out today, but leading up to the episode, uh, because, you know, there were a lot of Libyakos fans that were just completely down in the dumps after this. Uh, I'm not going to say names, Lambro, but... Uh, People completely down in the dumps over this. But there is a silver lining. So there were some really good things, good takeaways from this. Because for us, as a, as a small club in Greece, that traditionally, when we go into Europe, sits in the box, parks the bus, doesn't really move forward unless there's a clear opportunity, waits for set pieces. No. Under Martins, we play our game. You know, was the first half kind of shoddy? Yeah. But in the second half, we lined up, we switched from the 4-3-3 to the 4-2-3-1, made a couple of adjustments. All of a sudden, the second half, we were playing our game. And it looked like there was a possibility that maybe we could get a point out of this against the Giants, against Manchester City, arguably one of the best teams in Europe, if not the best team. Now, the tug on the heartstrings was, you know, we, we go into this like, oh, it's 3-0 easy, 4-0 easy, we're going to get destroyed. You get out of the half one nothing. You start playing well in the second half. Guys, oh my God, we might be able to get something out of this. Right. And then you get all the way to the 81st minute, let the goal in, and then, this, then of course, the third goal goes in. And it's just giving me flashbacks of Bayern Munich last year when we go toe-to-toe for 75 minutes just to let the floodgates open and then 3 nothing by the time the end of the game happens. I mean, for me, it was even reminiscent of the Porto game last week when you think about early goal, 
spend the most of the game chasing and looking threatening at times and like, oh, we just need to get it. We can get it. We can get this result. And then just a dagger in the 80th-ish minute. And it was the same exact thing today. Obviously, the expectations were different. You know, if you if you would have told me before the game we're going to lose 3-0, I'm like, yeah, I kind of expect that, whatever. But to have it end the way it did, and I think after that second goal, which, by the way, a very, very, very nice goal from Gabriel Jesus to, to get it in the near post. I literally thought it hit the side netting when I watched it. Gorgeous. It very nice goal. You could just tell they had given up, and then Cancelo hits that amazing strike to, to make it three. But, Adi, you also mentioned the Bayern Munich game, and... I think the reason I was a little bit upset about the first half against City was because I've seen this team, at least until fatigue set in, they competed with Bayern Munich last year. I mean, obviously, yeah. it's not the same exact team, but like Olympiacos can compete with these top European sides. And to see us look as sloppy as we did in the first half at times, especially right from the get-go in this game, until Ferran Torres scored the first goal, we literally barely saw the ball. They looked like they were having our way with us. I... I from watching that bit of the game, I was expecting to eat five or six in the back of our net, just the mm -hmm. way City were coming at us. Obviously, that goal allows maybe City to take the pressure off and Olympiacos to feel a little bit more resilient. But I think they could have probably played a bit better. You know, it's obviously not expected to get a result here, but I'm a bit down in the dumps, I'll say. Maybe not Lambro level, but I'm a bit down <laughs> in the dumps. I think... You guys brought it up, uh, but yeah, second lockdown here, election, craziness, Olympiacos not getting good results, so maybe that's why I'm so negative lately with the team. But again, we haven't, we haven't scored in the first half in like 10 games, guys. It's a joke. Like We, we eat an early goal, and I know we're not going to score again because we can't score. We haven't scored all season. The one hope we had was, like, the first half, I'm going to be honest, like, was so ugly, and Buhalakis was shocking. But when the start of the second half, you take Lazar Angelovic, who I made the joke, is like a Serbian Seba. That was a little mean. I'm sorry, Lazar Angelovic. And all <laughs> you got heat stars. for that. Yeah, everyone got really mad at that. But he shows flashes of Seba, who's terrible. I'm sorry to everyone. That was a bad reference. Maybe I was too negative with that. But again, just like when Pepe and Bruma came on, I think they need to play a lot more. I think that's that's something we need to see. If we're going to score goals, they're going to need to play because Lazar Angelovic is like not good enough for that level. Like he could he couldn't do anything, and it's just disappointing. I guess Peter said like we weren't competing. That's what really made me upset in the first half. It just looked like we saw the level and we were just like this is. Yeah, we're in trouble. I think that's the gut feeling I got right away. It was like the players got there. They got pressed like the first five, ten minutes. And they're like, oh, my God, we have never seen anything like this. And they just melted down. So I don't know how true that is, but that's how it felt to me. I wouldn't get too too downhearted about it i like I, like I, the comparison i make is um well first off you're watching olympiacos in the champions league so that's I, that that's that's a start uh, I, i've been a city fan for far too long uh, and this is this this is kind of like the heaven era of city, of supporting city because uh the era that i witnessed before it all uh, I'll take you back to um, 2006, the start of 2006-07. Uh, Stuart Pearce was City manager. They played the, the 38 Premier League games, obviously 19 at home, 
And uh, in those 19 games, they managed 10 goals all season. Uh, Georgia Samaras was leading the line for City that year. Um, and uh, yeah, it just, oh, it was, it was horrid watching. And I, I was, I was at uh, my first year at university and I missed two games uh, at home that season. I missed us uh, against Fulham, what that they won 3-1. Uh, and I missed them against Middlesbrough that they won 1-0. So I missed four home goals and 40% of every home goal that they scored oh. that season. <laughs> they didn't score a goal after New Year's Day. They went from January to May at home without scoring a single home goal. And that was all simply because they, they were just, they had nothing in attack. They were not up for games. And the number of times you, you'd concede the first goal in a game and it'd be 20 minutes into the game, you go, right, well, that's it. <laughs> game's, game's over. <laughs> yeah, but you got to see Samaras and that gorgeous mane of his. That's head true. And shoulder, soft and foot free. <laughs> that is uh, true. Oh, God, that brings back memories of the days where he used to irritate the ever-living hell out of me for the national team. Um. But uh, jumping into jumping into the metrics, and David, I really want your opinion on some of these metrics because I'll be honest, I you know, I thought I was going to look at the match report and be just disgusted at how bad Olympiacos was. But there were some very interesting things here. And then when I was looking at some historic data as well, just some very interesting things for all Olympiacos fans to kind of be positive about. So obviously, when we look at the shots, you know, Olympiacos only registered five shots, nothing on target. Uh, Manchester City had 19 with seven on target. Obviously, they were more active. Now, of course, Olympiacos rivals, Greek rivals, did nothing but make fun of us about how poor that was. Only five shots, nothing on target. So I went and checked out how Marseille and Porto did uh, against Manchester City in the previous fixtures. And Porto managed six shots, two of which were on target. One was the solo effort that they scored, that consolation goal at the end, which was Nice to watch. And then Marseille only managed two, also not on target. So we're not straying from the pack. You know, there, there is worse. Now, first thing all Lubiakos fans need to hear, Manchester City is the first team in all competitions this year to outpossess us and outpass us this season. No team in Europe, no team in Greece. Well, I don't think any team in Greece could, but no team in Europe or Greece has been able to do it, even this far in the group stage. We also maintained an 89% pass accuracy in totality for this game. If, if everybody remembers in Porto, our passing was a little bit poor. Our average, and so was Porto's, was low 80s. But in this game, our passing was relatively crisp, especially that's weighted towards the second half. We didn't make that many mistakes in possession. Now, of course, the really bad thing for us, which... I believe is part of the reason why we ended up losing most of the battles, not just in midfield, but in the our defensive third as well as the offensive third. We only won 38% of duels. Manchester City was all over. Didn't matter whether we were challenging them on the ball, they were challenging us on the ball, more likely to win everything. So far in Europe, Olympiacos is averaging a 23% positional attack efficiency. For those that don't remember what that is, Positional attack efficiency measures the number of times you build up possession into an attack, not a counter, slow build up attack into the offensive third, how many times you get a shot. Normally, we're at 23%. Against Manchester City, it was 11%. We couldn't penetrate, couldn't get into the final third to get any kind of shots off. Normally, our counter, 30%. We average about three of them a game. Usually, one of them comes off. Well, we had one counter, and it didn't lead to anything, unfortunately. In terms of where our attacks came from, we were pretty 
equal in terms of the distribution. All from the wings, eight on the left, eight on the right. I think one came up through the center. Uh, our largest goal threats did come from that right-hand side after halftime, of course. As I mentioned earlier, we started off with a 4-3-3. Then, of course, we made the adjustment because the 4-3-3 was getting burned most of the first half. We went back to the 4-2-3-1, our bread and butter, and we got a lot more compact, and we were able to possess the ball much better. Um, now, where we should have been successful this game, probably one of the only spots we really could have been successful is in aerial duels. Olympiacos as a team only won two aerial duels in the whole game. And our average team height was a quite a few inches taller than Manchester City. That's pretty unacceptable. Um, so I wanted to get your guys' opinions on some of these metrics in terms of the, the overarching metrics with regards to the, the game result. Well, the aerial duels thing to me, I just want to briefly say, we had said before the game, look, City have Stones and Ake at the back. Stones, obviously, not the best option they have, I'll just say. And Ake, I honestly don't know why, but when I've watched him in the past at Bournemouth, I remember him as being a taller player. He's actually not really that big as far as center backs go. Uh, and we have Cisse and Semedo. Cisse, obviously, not great at winning aerial duels, actually, but he's huge. And Semedo is pretty good in the air. And City are also playing without a true striker to start the game out. I really thought that would be an opportunity whether it would be set pieces for us or just defending set pieces for them where we would just kill it. And um, that didn't really materialize for us. I also forgot one metric. And David, I really want your opinion on this. Olympiacos is the only team that has attempted 500 passes against Manchester City. And it is also the only team to break 40% possession against Manchester City this year. We are the most successful team, Include even if you include the Champions League games after the restart. Real Madrid didn't possess as much as we did against Manchester City. Again, large part of that owing to the second half. Uh, but I thought that was incredible, that no team, England or Champions League otherwise, and this is including Porto and Marseille, has been able to possess as much as we have against Manchester City. Uh, David, I wanted your opinions on a lot of those data metrics, but more specifically yeah. that one about the possession. I think let's, let's take the possession one to start with. Um, I think that's, that's interesting because City's formula for this season is basically pass and pass and pass and get nowhere. They, it feels sometimes like, like City controls so much of the ball, but then can't, or just can't find the, the way through to create a chance or they can't find a, 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 that killer pass that sets somebody free. And it eventually ends up with either a shot over the bar, but, you know, high and wide from, from range or, you know, throw in or something like that. And then a breakaway in the, uh, and, the, and uh, the other team score. And then it becomes even harder to try and get through. And eventually you might break them down kind of 70 minutes or so and you score one or two goals. I think that like, this season, taking the Premier League games, um, this is the longest into a season that City have been since 2010, where they haven't hit double figures by this stage. They're, they're, they're still on um, they're still on single figures for the number of goals they've scored. They've already done it by this stage in in the last what is it nine years now, ten years nearly. So that there's clearly some sort of issue there. Um, to be able to to get more of the ball off City, it's it's actually quite an achievement because the one thing City can do, even when they're not playing well, is pass the ball and keep possession. Um, 
normally when you see teams get a result against City, it's because they've let City have the ball and just not provided any opportunities. So to actually to, to actually steal some of the ball might actually be a little bit of your undoing in this game because you've <laughs> then ended up you know giving away possession in, in dangerous areas. Um, the height one, I, I can only assume that, that the height one is, is uh, the aerial duels is a, is, is a bit of an anomaly because, uh, I mean, City's average height is, is definitely brought down by about 10 feet by Phil Foden. Every, everybody else is uh, <laughs> uh, he, he's up there, I think. And it's and just like the three foot six Phil Foden is bringing the average down. I don't know. Um, to be fair to Stones, Stones is, is, is bloody good in the air. Um, and since Ake's come in, he's been, I don't think he's put a foot wrong, to be honest, at, at City so far. And, and yeah. you know, having watched him on and off at Bournemouth, um, I've been a little bit surprised by his performances at City because I, I didn't think he was as good as he has been for City. Um, and I'm, I feel a bit of a fool for not having spotted that earlier. Yeah, I thought I thought the defenders had a fine game, uh, personally. I I think the problem with Olibiakos, I, I sent this to the guys, Matthew Valbuena is considered our kind of dead ball expert, but I can't remember him playing a good ball into the box or creating a dangerous corner in, like, honestly, Arsenal versus when Cissé scored that header. Like, I literally cannot think of another goal we've scored from a header or a set piece. And I think it's time that maybe we look somewhere else. I know Jose Jolebas, <laughs> this is not a joke. I, I hear he has good corners that's what he used to do at Watford like I don't know if he's going to play we might as well try those out yeah I think the other mistake I think Olympiakos made um, was uh, again not getting one of those shots on target because City have a history of conceding the first shot on target that they face <laughs> I know it's not Claudio Bravo in goal at the moment but uh, when he was in goal it was, it was pretty much any shot on target went in we used to, we used to call him the hologram because he's the only man I've ever seen come out to narrow the angle as a goalkeeper and, and make the make the goal look bigger. I don't know how he did it. Um, Edison is 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 much much better, and to be fair to him, has played a lot better this season than he was playing last season. But still, the defensive woes that City have gone through generally are: oh, the other teams had a, had their first shot on target. Oh, it's gone in, and that's the problem. So I think. For City to have, have uh, those stats for City in the Champions League to have faced what is it two shots on target in three games? I think they've done really well to to be able to keep the opposition to do that. And let's not, I mean, let's not forget as well that uh, I know City were in pot two in the Champions League this season, but they are effectively a pot one team. They've got resources of a pot one team. They're not that the Champions League is always weighted in favour of of a the teams that can afford to buy the best players all the time, and b the teams that do well in the Champions League. So, like, this this group is, uh, I mean, you, you talk about the, the stats about uh, how Porto, Marseille and, and now Olympiacos have done against City. Um, you don't really expect anything else because City, come what may, they can afford to buy the better players. So they're going to have better players. That's, it, it all eventually boils down to that. But, I mean, I, I guess this is a football podcast and not a, not a dissection of capitalism and, and the <laughs> capitalist structures that we live under. <laughs> and... We actually spoke about that on a previous podcast. Uh, City has uh, their, I think I put it together, it was like one or two players that have the, the value of our, not just our roster, our organization. So uh, just to put it into perspective. And, and part of that's why a lot of people didn't expect a lot from this. But uh, again, I mean, when you actually get into it, and then again, aside from that first half shell shock, I call it, because that's really what it was. I mean, 
as a, I was a player, and I remember when I was on the field going up against national champions that were clearly a step above us. Uh, you know, even though we weren't bad ourselves, and most of the guys I played with either played professional or at the very least four years of college going forward. And when when that happens, and sometimes there's no, there's nothing a coach can do to prepare you for that. When you're against a team that's just in a different echelon than you are, sometimes you just sit there like, what are we going to do? And then it takes a couple of moments of possession or a couple big moments, a big save from a keeper, a big, a big send in for you to be like, okay, wait, we can do this. And then you have to grow into that. And Olympiacos hasn't played anybody like that. I'll even say going really since, I guess since pre-lockdown really, because our, I mean, Arsenal's Arsenal. They're still a good team, but the Arsenal that we played against last year that was in the middle of that turmoil, isn't the same as some of the Arsenal teams in the past. So Really, and Tottenham, I mean, I'm going to get flack for this, I'm sure, on social media, but I'm sorry. Tottenham isn't anything special, even even last year. It was the star power that got past us. And Bayern Munich, Bayern Munich, they won, they won the Champions League, but I don't know if they were the strongest Bayern Munich of the past. And so we have never faced a team with this tempo in terms of its passing, in terms of its mobility, and especially in terms of its cohesion. We haven't played a team like that. So this was this was shell shock for the team. And I'm glad to see they grew into it. And I'm hoping that tactically we have something else to come with in the second leg. First of all, we'll have Usain Uba back. Why that's important, we'll explain when we get into the player analytics. Uh, and then Gostas Fortunis. The second half, was the perfect game script for him. Starting to possess well, look like we were starting to, to, to run the defense back. We needed somebody that could break through. And Costas Fortunis, as Guardiola said, in the post-match presser, he's a top-quality player. He really is. We just have to figure out what's going on behind the scenes. You know, Is he the mental case we hear the rumors about, or is there something else going on entirely? Um, but before we get you know more into that, the player analytics will really give us a better picture of kind of who did what for us. Yeah, and I think now is a good time to just run through those, uh, starting with the goalkeeper, Jose Sa. Obviously, he was a lot more busy than he's really ever been this season. Obviously, I don't think we've conceded three goals in a game yet this year. And uh, as far as what he did, he did make some saves, obviously. They put a lot of shots on target. The goals that were conceded, we talked about the Jesus goal. I mean, theoretically, he could have got in front of it, but it was just a rocket and beat him at the near post. Really, really tight angle and just a perfect finish for him. And then the Cancelo finish was, for me, almost maybe just caught him off guard in the sense that it was unexpected for him to just have a hit from that far out. Uh, the first goal, a bit sloppy, but uh, certainly not like a, a howler on the part of Jose Sa. So... I'm not certainly not his fault that we uh, we conceded all those goals, but definitely one of the busier games for him this year. Going to the center backs, a bit less solid at the back, I would say. Uh, we talked about how Cisse had a solid game last week in general, but especially with the ball for me, he didn't really look as good. Uh, we go into the analytics. He was one for three on his defensive duels. He did win his one aerial duel, three of four on slide tackles, nine interceptions, seven recoveries, five clearances, but folks with the ball, seven losses in our own half. I mean, that's just, that can't be happening here in these big games. City, 
like every time City get the ball, any any of that front five of attackers and midfielders for City, whenever they get the ball, I'm sitting there like my butt cheeks are clenched. Like that is yeah. just, I don't want to see Kevin De Bruyne barreling up the pitch against us and Cissé just giving the ball away like that. It was happening a lot. Well, he gave it, he gave it away like three times that led directly to chances. Yeah. And you, Scary. You can't have that. It's, <laughs> it, you can't be ha- you can't have that, especially with the class that Manchester City has. You're just asking for a five zero drubbing with that. I mean, unbelievable. And then you go to Semedo, who, in some ways, is almost the opposite. Where with the ball, he looked pretty good. Forty nine out of fifty passes, folks. Eight of eight on his long balls. Six of them were actually downfield attempts. So pretty good passing for him. A bit more solid with the ball, as we usually expect from Semedo usually gives that confidence, but he did have a couple moments where he looked a bit shaky, especially early on in the game, gave up the ball twice in the box. Uh, I think there was a moment when Raheem Sterling just absolutely made him look like a a little kid uh, who'd never played football before. He was one for five on his defensive duels, 0 for two on aerials, one for one on his loose ball duels, six interceptions, four recoveries, three clearances. Yeah. He is our quarterback back there. He is he is to us what Shalea Shar is to Marseille. So much of our restart, so much of our possession downfield starts through him. He's very talented with the ball at his feet, but he is not our rock in the back. And Cissé was out of his depth. Even though he did okay, and we brought this up on Twitter earlier, Cissé did fine, but Usain Uba has been our stud. He has been our rock. Multiple performances where he is literally 100% dual win rate. Doesn't matter what it is. Yep. Nothing gets by him. So I have to think that in the return leg, when he's available, that, you know, maybe some of this, some of these giveaways don't happen, or maybe some of the opportunities that were on goal maybe don't happen with him there. Ba is a huge difference maker in the back. And we've seen now when he's not there, kind of the haplessness of Cissé, what that can lead to. And, you know, the... Maybe Cissé didn't play so good, but I, I have to give a shout-out to, I think, is his first name Ferran Torres, the the kid who played striker for you guys. Um, Honestly, I, I heard that, okay, he's not a natural striker, but I don't think he was a bad striker at all, to be honest with you. it's I wouldn't be surprised if he plays there more for you and maybe becomes a striker because he had great movement and his finishing was nice, like... I really rated what I saw from him. I, I don't know if he's done that throughout the season or has been starting there, but he looks like a top striker or could be a top striker one day. He, he seemed like a top player, at least. Yeah, he's um, he's he surprises there, really, I think. Uh, he, he, he only arrived in the summer, so he was he's still bedding into the team. Um, and obviously Aguero has been injured for most of the season. Uh, Jesus started the season and then picked up this injury that, that kept him out until uh, until Tuesday's game. And it was kind of it just not really working with Sterling up front and, and Sterling through the middle. Guardiola tried Torres there, uh, I think it was against Porto in the Champions League, um, although it may have been as late as Marseille. And uh, it just worked really well. And, it's, and, and ever since then, he's, he's kind of been... He's been a good option for City there. I don't think he's, he's impressed uh, as much as he did. Uh, I think Olympiakos has, has been his best game in that position. Um, but I certainly see what you mean. I think he's he's certainly going to be a, a good option for City through the centre. Um, now that Jesus is back, I 
I'm not sure he'll get as many opportunities to do that. Uh, and certainly when Aguero's back, he, he won't get any opportunities because Aguero is practically, well, he's undroppable. You can't, you don't take him out of the team. He's that good. But I think in the absence of those two, he's, he's been, um, he's done better than expected and he's been really good. Fun fact about Ferran Torres, he is five years old. Now, what do you think I mean by that? <laughs> he is actually born on February 29th. So he yeah. only celebrates his birthday every four years. He's actually, oh, God. he's actually, I, I guess, it, 20 years old. That was the old, corniest but... thing I think I've ever heard. That was terrible. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's a fun fact, That's... guys. I don't know what to say. He's a proper right. wonder kid. <laughs> we'll, we'll give that one to Peter. Uh, moving on to the wingbacks, um, Jolivas and Rafinha were, were two players that Guardiola also kind of recognized in his post-match. Jolivas going forward, I think especially, kind of surprised even us. He had a couple of those fun nutmegs, a uh, couple of dangerous opportunities. Defensively, earlier, Manchester City had a lot of attacks going down that right side. Everybody's trying to test Jolivas. He on paper, is the weak point, but he's kind of stepped up for some of these games. Now, he still did get run a little ragged. He was one for five for his defensive duels. Nothing in the air. One loose ball that he didn't win. Five interceptions, three recoveries, one clearance. 30 for 34 passes completed. He had two downfield long ball attempts that were cut out, unfortunately, and one cross. He had four nice progressive runs, two which turned into some type of attempt on goal. And then, you know, attempted seven dribbles, three were successful, five for 11 in offensive duels. So offensively, there was something there, something to praise. Defensively, of course, he, the poor guy was just run ragged. Now, Rafinha on the other side, four for six in his defensive duels, uh, nothing in the air, three for six in loose ball, three interceptions, six recoveries, one clearance. He also had three losses in our half. Uh, one which was in the box, but that was like an intercepted pass, and Raheem Sterling was right behind him. So he intercepts the pass, but didn't know he had Raheem Sterling on him, and then he just takes the ball from him. And then there was another loss where Cissé sends this really high ball to him when he's kind of in pressure. And it's a lot to ask when you're in pressure to settle that and, and really come away with it. So I don't really hold those against him. Rafinha is the, the, is the type of wingback that's kind of frustrating us because he's really involved in our offense. He's always one of the most heavily involved in link-up play, but we don't get a lot of crosses out of him. We're not really getting a lot of end product out of him. Versus Omar last year, who was also heavily involved, was whipping in crosses constantly. So from our wingback play, this is something that we've argued about and has stressed us out is that we're not getting as much overlap, as much crossing from our wingbacks as we were used to last year. Yeah, I tweeted this out on the on the weekend when we saw Mohamed Drager. Played fantastic, and I really want to see him going forward. And I tweeted out that this whole Rafinha-Drager situation is like we're back in 2014 with Omar Abdelawi and Leonardo Salina. Like, it is ridiculous the comparisons that you can make. It's just... Rafinha maybe he's better defensively but he's not as physical he doesn't have the endurance but he's smarter he's older he's also Brazilian like Selena was oh my god it's just there's so many comparisons like Draeger's the much more exciting player I understand Draeger is young we don't want to throw him in the deep end to play Manchester City but I would not be surprised if by January or February this is Draeger's spot 
and Rafinha is collecting a big salary, not doing a ton. And I appreciate you for bringing that up, Lamro, because we haven't really had time to cover the Apollon game. We're not going to get too much into it, but I do want to give a big shout out to Mohamed Drager because he was the standout performance of that game for me. Uh, I thought he played incredibly well in his debut for the club, showed that he will run up and down all game long. Well, he got subbed off towards the end, but all game long, even though we're just playing some minnows in Greece, uh, it's something you really love to see. And he had a like you said, more solid end product, I think, getting in those crossing positions and making those plays more than Rafinha. Uh, like you said, it's maybe a bit too soon to rush him into Champions League, but really encouraging stuff. And I do want to just mention that because we didn't get to see him against City. We did get to see him last weekend. He looked good. Just remember, when we did the deep dive on Drager, the concern is tracking back. So I'm okay with him not playing against City, but that was a major concern I had when we watched the tape on him. He's Great going forward. We saw that in the tape. Great skill, loves to get forward, and is pretty successful doing so. But tracking back, that's kind of where the problem is. And that's where we will get burned by teams like Manchester City if he can't track back. I always said um, the perfect fullback for, for City. Um, for I mean, from it must have been about 2010 to about 2017 or so. Uh, the perfect fullback would be if you could mix Gail Clichy and Alexander Coral. Uh, yep. because uh, Clichy, uh, all I'm hearing there is the same problem, the same <laughs> discussions we used to have about Clichy over Coral. Uh, Clichy, fine, okay defensively, not brilliant, but, but solid enough. Uh, would get in the opposition half and could not get the ball into the box to save his life. Uh, Kolarov could ping crosses across like nobody's business, but would forget to defend. So <laughs> I, like, it's, it's not just an Olympiakos problem, trust me. Yeah, now uh, moving on to the midfield, um, I'm not even going to touch Buhalakis because people have already complained about him on Twitter. Just really didn't do anything. I'm really concerned that his confidence has now taken a hit because of that giveaway, that giveaway that led to the goal and arguably what led to the loss against Porto. So I think really that his nerves are still playing here because he just didn't look like the same player. He's slow, but he usually can calm possession down. I I'm worried a little bit now. I, I think Martins is going to have a little bit of a problem or at least a tough tough challenge trying to get him back on track because Bukalakis just hasn't looked like what we've seen leading up to the Porto game. Yeah, I can't agree more. Um, honestly, looking at the analytics, they were maybe even a bit more forgiving than my eyes after the first half. Um, mm -hmm. You could just kind of tell that he wasn't in the game and I was hoping for the exact subs that we got uh, when he was subbed off and um, yeah, I think it was a deserved halftime sub for him. I think this is going to be a larger theme, but for this game alone, just Buhalakis doesn't have the pace. He doesn't have the skill that our other midfielders have. He was really just exposed, I think, this game, and it's not his level. And going forward, I think we may have a problem. We're actually very lucky that there's no fans in the stadium because the whistles will be getting really loud if we had fans in the stadium. Buhalakis would be in trouble. He's been in trouble before, but he... <laughs> Oh my God, I could not imagine what it would be like in Gariskaki if Andreas Buhalakis came home after the mistake in Porto and all the giveaways he made against Manchester City and just terrible start to the seasons he's been having. 
you might have people in the airport whistling at him if they were allowed to come. I mean, <laughs> not a great couple of performances here. But the good news, the good news is Jan and Vila looked solid. He's definitely growing into a role here with the club. 60 of 66 passes, attempting some solid long balls, getting the attack going, four of five on those, six interceptions and nine recoveries for him. Overall, that's a solid game. So we've got Jan and Vila. Obviously, he is that six. He's that defensive midfielder. It's nice to see him with some progressive passes, you know, getting things going in attack, especially in a game where at some times it just seemed like we could not pick out a pass uh, to get anything going at all. And then, of course, you've also got two of our more attacking options in the midfield, Mari Camara, who made his return after recovering from the coronavirus, and Pepe Rodriguez, who uh, is making his, I believe, second appearance in Europe as a sub. Uh, both of them, I think especially Pepe, looked good. I was a bit concerned with Pepe against Apollon over the weekend, and I think he looked a lot better against City. 32 of 33 passes, two of them were downfield, one key pass and one shot assist for him. I have a feeling that Pepe will probably be taking Pujalakis' place because Pepe, just from his second half performance, or I should say the time that he was on in the second half, is kind of what we're seeing Martins try to get Pujalakis to do going forward. Pujalakis just doesn't have the, he doesn't have the technical capacity to do it. He also doesn't have pace or the dribbling skill, even though he's a very accurate passer and crosser of the ball. Pepe has that little bit more it factor that we really need. I mean, we need a midfield maestro besides Valbuena. Well, that's more of an attacking mid, if anything. But besides Mati, Mati can't do everything in the midfield offensively by himself. We see this poor guy running box to box in a 4-3-3. Right now, he's young. He can kind of do it all day. But we need somebody else to pick up the slack so that people aren't just keying in on him and and stifling us so pepe is interesting there's a silver lining there we have somebody a real maestro that really can develop for us and kind of give us a multifaceted attack in the midfield yeah i was encouraged by what i saw with him and especially i mean it took all the new signings a little bit to get acclimated to the team but i think he also had an injury on top of uh just the general acclimation process so it's good to see that he is starting to get in there a little bit um definitely a bit less encouraging over the weekend, but obviously this is just stuff that comes with time and to see him play better against Manchester City, that's good. Just just two quick points on Pepe. One thing I noticed is he's really comfortable with both feet. I don't know if you guys noticed that, both on his left and right. It's, it was actually really impressive. I I hadn't seen a player for Libelco's play passes that beautiful with both his feet. I was impressed with that. And also the game against Apollon, I guess it wasn't the the best game I've ever seen from a midfielder. But I really felt he flowed with this game, this high pressing. I, I I felt like he was it was much more comfortable with him than sitting back and trying to break down like ten men behind the ball. I think he loved getting pressured, going in and out of spaces, playing one twos. Like I think that is the type of player that he wants to be, you know, and Maybe he's used to playing bigger teams. In Portugal, um, of course, he played for Guimarães. So I guess they're mid-table or upper-table. They're they're used to playing bigger teams like Benfica and Porto. So maybe he's used to that style more. It's going to take him a while to get used to trying to break down these really stubborn Greek teams. You're absolutely right. And uh, David, this is something I want your opinion on as well. 
you know, we saw today, not just with the midfield, but kind of who's capable of dealing with these high-pressure situations. Yanam Vila, absolute class with the ball at his feet. You know, the, the pressure comes to him, silky smooth one-touches, can deflect pressure. Pepe has the technical ability to take a touch, move somewhere. Bukhalaki's not so much. Madi, I mean, Madi, you know what you're getting. I mean, Madi's going to take some risks. He's got pace. He might not still be the most crisp with the ball at his feet, but he's very physical. And he can get forward with the ball, can get dangerous. So I was curious from the Manchester City perspective if there were any midfielders that kind of stood out to you or if collectively, and you can be honest, did they not seem very threatening? It's it's difficult to, to kind of put a, a hand on it because ultimately the way that City play, if you if you get past that first couple of presses, then you're you're in a very good position because you're in you're almost in behind. But there's there's very few teams that actually get through that 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 first line of pressure. Watching the game, I didn't feel particularly threatened by Olympiacos because it always felt like uh, there ha it has to be a sequence of like three or four really good, accurate passes in quick succession. And it always felt like somewhere that chain would be broken. And that's not necessarily, I, I don't think that's a huge criticism of Olympiacos because there are not many teams in the world that, that, that are able to do that. In fact, I think the only one that I've really seen this season that's been able to do that against City is Leicester City. And, you know, they came to the Etihad, they were able to break that press five times in total and uh, got down the other end and scored five times. So it, it's it's not necessarily a case of uh, is there one midfielder who stood out or, or, or anything like that. I think it's a case of can this midfield unit do it when they're under pressure. And I, I, I thought Olympiacos coped better than most teams do in that situation. It's it's one thing to to first off not give away any chance or, or not give away too many chances when City are pressing like that. And then the second thing is, can we play through it? And uh, like I say, there are very few teams that, that are able to play through it. I think it's not it's not a bad thing not looking threatening in that sort of situation, especially when you've got the likes of Kevin De Bruyne and Raheem Sterling consistently offering that sort of pressure up. I think the only the disappointment for me from City's point of view is that that there were so many times where it felt like a little bit more coordinated pressure could put the Olympiacos midfield and, and, and defence under a lot more uh, kind of mental mental pressure. And what I mean by that is, like, I mean, I, I'm going to hold my hands up and say I am not as good a footballer as anybody that played for City that night. Let's just let that, I mean, I, I don't think anybody was under any illusions, but just in case you were thinking that I might be able to do it, I'm yet to play professionally, is what I'm going to say. Um, and time is quickly running out on my ability to do that as well. But when like when we play football on a uh, on a five aside and a seven aside pitch, it's I, I, what I try and drum into the uh, into the team around us. It's not necessarily about having the skill to get out of those positions. It's having the calmness to be able to take the ball under pressure and, and not just put your foot through it and get rid of it, clear the danger. And you're always going to make mistakes in those situations. You are always going to be in a situation where you give the ball away. It's how you react to that. And it's if you can make sure that the other team don't sense that you don't want the ball, then it almost it gives you that, that, that kind of extra 5 or 10%. And I always sense that, that in this game, while Olympiacos were under pressure, they were coping with that pressure, not expertly, but, but as good as anybody would expect them to. Were Olympiacos dangerous? I didn't particularly think so when, when City were pressing them. Does that mean that it was a, a, a bad performance? Not necessarily so, because like we say, it took 80 minutes for City to get that second goal and uh, and actually kill the tie off. 
all it takes in in the what was it city scored on 12 13 minutes or so all it takes in in that kind of 70 minute period is one breakaway and you know breakaway well executed and a goal at the other end and suddenly there's something to defend and hang on to there um i just think it was unfortunate that that it ended the way it did for olympiacos and again from a city point of view we'd turn around and say well 3-0 job done you know well done everybody it wasn't wasn't your best performance of the season but you know, you've got the you've got the result and you've got the points, and that's that's all that matters in the end. No, I I agree with you, and we'll see about this midfield. It's certainly an interesting case when you mentioned players not seeming like they want the ball. I mean, Buhalakis is the first one I thought of. You know, sometimes it seems like he doesn't really want to be want to be in those situations. But anyway, we've talked about him enough. Uh, I do want to briefly touch on the wingers. So. We had Lazar Ranjevic start out on the right. He was pretty quiet. I mean, eight out of 11 passes, got subbed off at halftime. The decision-making is still an issue for me. You, you see him just trying to sometimes do things that don't really make a lot of sense. Uh, he's got the pace. He's even got a decent shot. But, I mean, he, he just isn't starter quality for me for Olympiacos. We bring on Bruma at halftime. Uh, I was upset over the weekend. We didn't see more of him, but he came in and looked really good, I think. Obviously, he's a quick player. He had his eye on the attacking third for City. You know, he was wanting to get in those positions. Uh, he was all over the pitch, especially as soon as he came on. There was a big spurt of activity from us with the ball, and I think that was largely owing to him. And then I think he may be quieted down a bit towards the end, but overall a good performance from him. And then Valbuena, maybe not his greatest game. Uh, it's hard to expect amazing stuff from him every single day, but he still did have 49 of 54 passes, three of five on his crosses, and one of three on his dribbles. You can't expect Valbuena to carry us every game. I think this is the first game that he actually didn't have a key pass. Yeah, no, it's it's in in forever. So, I mean, credit to him. Masuras came on, you know, got a few touches, ended up getting a key pass, you know, for his little time on the field. So credit to Masuras for that. Lambro said this in our group text earlier, but... I'm starting to get kind of a renewed positivity for Masuras based on the interview with Yanakopoulos. After that interview, I did a year-over-year comparison, and Masuras is doing better, still inconsistent, but doing better getting forward, more efficient with his time. And it's important to mention that Masuras is also a player that it leads in a Champions League metric, and it's a positive one. Masuras is a top five player in the Champions League in crossing efficiency. He has nine crosses so far in the Champions League, 55.556, whatever it is, percent. That's top four in Champions League so far amongst all players. Yeah, he's he's watching film of Stelios. You can, you can tell there's improvement there. And yep. uh, I totally agree. Uh, having the interview with Stelios, he really spoke positively on Masuras and on the conversations that they've had when Stelios was working for the Ethniki and yeah, I mean, he just seems like he's willing to work and get better. And so, you know, I have that hope that he'll eventually become more consistent with the end product. Yeah, but honestly, I think Masuras is really missing having Kosas Chimikas next to him. Like, I think Chimikas brought the best out of him. I think they actually brought the best out of each other, you know. And yeah, we're really missing that combination on our fullbacks. I don't know if we'll see that anytime soon with Ruben Vinagre. Etc. Etc. We'll just have to wait and see, but that's disappointing. Hopefully, with the national team, we'll see that connection. But yeah, one thought on that. Yeah, Vinagre, by the way, not great against Apollon, but we won't talk about that too much. And 
Jimmy Goss back in the team for Liverpool, so good for him. Hopefully he can get some time. He appeared as a sub in their most recent Champions League game. Wrapping up here, folks, uh, as we usually do, I think it'll be a good idea if we go around and give coaches grade and whatnot, maybe a man of the match, even though it was a 3-0 defeat for Olympiacos. Uh, I'll go ahead and start. I think for Martins, I'm actually going to give a pretty positive coach's grade just because given the circumstances, given who we were playing, I think we responded pretty well. You know, there was some sloppiness, but I think he made the right changes. He made the changes I wanted to see at least. So I'll say a B- minus for Martins. Uh, obviously, a 3-0 defeat is tough, but it was reasonably well coached. Uh, and, you know, this is, of course, the Fortunius situation set aside for now. And then man of the match, for me, it's a tough one. I'm going to say Bruma personally, just because he excited me more than anyone else. Uh, that might be a bit of an unpopular pick, but I really liked what he did when he came on. So I'll say him. Lambro? I, I don't think Martins had any choice, to be honest with you, to start the game. And I think he responded well with the subs. I just... I'll give him a B minus, C plus. Um, it was always going to be tough. One comment I think I've read on social media is Bruma looks like Bambi on ice sometimes. <laughs> and I so get that. Like he's just like throwing his legs around doing step overs and then just runs into someone. It's actually quite hilarious. But like those random step overs are like one million times better than Lazar Angelovic like kicking the ball past someone who's literally like ready to go and just like he's like what are you doing man <laughs> just picks up the ball but anyway yeah middle of the match uh it's it's tough i'm gonna go Jan and via i guess i think he had a great game in the midfield i i think he's a great pickup and we're not missing guillerme so much with Jan and via these days yeah i told you guys with bruma when we did the deep dive it looks a little awkward on the dribble but it seems to work so if with his speed, if he gets by people, I'll take it. If that's the end product, I don't care how awkward it looks. If it's effective, it's effective. Uh, and for the listeners, we skipped El Arabi and Hassan for a reason. They were both terrible. Even though Hassan was only on the field for 20 minutes, he had two successful actions. Not passes, not uh, total actions. Two successful the whole game. Echtala. No, no, no. And then El Arabi was also equally useless. So we're, we just completely skipped them for a reason. Uh, for me, uh, you know, I'm going to give Martins. Uh, see, part of me weighs the Fortunis, the whole Fortunis thing against him a little bit because this was a game that we needed him. Now, that's contextual because if Fortunis was just being a spoiled little brat, then of course you have to put the team before the player. So I'm just going to leave that part out of it. I'll give Martins a, I'm going to say, I'll say B plus because the changes that he made formation as well had effect. There was some success there. Obviously there was no goal. Uh, the reason I'm not going to give him an A is because I didn't see why Hassan was coming on. I didn't see the game script for it. It's not like we were whipping that many crosses or there were that many opportunities for tap-ins. So I thought that was poor. So, you know, actually I'll do a B. I'll just give him a B and that's going to be my grade. Uh, David, if you could give a grade for, for Olympiacos based on the coaching, the tactics changes, what would it be? And then while you're at it, give Guardiola a grade as well. Yeah, I thought um, I thought you'd been a bit harsh on Olympiacos there, to be honest, uh, because, <laughs> I, again, they made the game tough for City for the most part. And I think, uh, ultimately, 3-0 is a bit of a harsh scoreline because of, of the way it unfolded and two kind of two late goals. Um, I, I'd have edged towards the B-plus territory. 
again, just because like start take the start of the second half, for instance. I, you know, you looked at half time and went, "What are we doing wrong? What can we do to, to to cause City problems?" And the start of the second half, it did cause City problems. In in um, City were not comfortable for the start of that second half. As the game wore on, they grew back into the game, and and, and it you know eventually ended with um, with Jesus scoring a, a, a pretty a pretty good finish in the end. Um, for Guardiola, I, I would edge again towards A minus B plus sort of territory, just because I um I, I I really 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 want him to switch back to to what he used to do when when uh, Sane was at the club and have a left footer on the left, a right footer on the right, and use that way to stretch the game. I thought Mares played particularly well for City. Um, I thought Sterling was was quiet at times, but did okay. And I, I was surprised Sterling didn't run at Rafinha a bit more, given that he's, what, 102 and was on a yellow card for most of the game as well. So <laughs> it's like, it's like, just run at him, see what happens. Like, so I, I get that those two in the team. Um, I, I just I just wonder what would happen if you swapped them over and you had Sterling on the right. And I know Mares doesn't like the left flank, but if you have him on the left, then you might stretch that game a little bit more and, and create a few more pockets of space. And that's what I really, really want to see him do. In the end... Obviously, it didn't cost City in this game. It's It, it very rarely costs City. Um, one or two times this season, it, it's been frustrating to watch at times. But I guess, you know, that's why he's paid the big bucks and I'm not. So, you know, he's, he's, doing, he's doing something. Let's say from his City career, he's doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, if there's one thing that maybe you've learned today about Greek football fans in general, uh, they're generally pretty uh, reactive Particularly harsh, yeah. Pretty harsh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's you're, you're looking at the number one Greek football fan, irrational, so <laughs> irrational. Yeah, and terribly. It's we we have these guys over here with the data, and I'm just like, throw it in the bin. The eye test is all I need. It's terrible. <laughs> I read well, the newspaper. The other side yeah. is when we win a big game, it's like we can beat anyone. We are the biggest club on earth. Okay, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but this is how Greek fans are, I think. Um, with that being said, David, I think that's that about wraps up our coverage for the Olympiakos Man City game. We want to thank you very, very much for coming on. Uh, we oh, know thank you, have you for having moon. me. Oh, yeah. No, of course. And uh, we know you have the Blue Moon podcast, which Lambro uh, featured on. If you want to rewatch that episode to hear Lambro talk about football, uh, which we all love to do you can go visit the Blue Moon podcast. Um, David, is there anything that you'd like to promote or plug while you're on? Uh, not really, just that. It's uh, bluemoonpodcast.com. Um, all the recent episodes are on there. We have one, in, we have a new one every week. And uh, yeah, I also do the Athletics uh, City podcast, Why Always Us as well. So uh, mm. if, if, if people are not sick of me talking about City one week at the start of the week, then they can get it at the end of the week as well. <laughs> well, there you go. We'll be sure to keep up with that. And uh Best of luck to you guys for the rest of the season. Uh, you know, of course, when you're not playing us, I kind of expect City to finish on top of this group and maybe Olympiacos will be lucky enough to grab second. So uh, best of luck to you for the rest of the campaign. And uh, yeah, good, good luck, guys. On. And we'll, uh, we'll we'll see you in a, is it three weeks? We'll see you in three about, weeks. About, about three weeks. Yeah. And with that, let's head into the other Greek teams that are playing in Europe. Sorry, this is a bit of an Olympiakos-focused episode, but obviously with David, we wanted to talk about the Manchester City game. But we have Pauk playing PSV in what is actually a pretty big game, a big, big opportunity for Pauk to jump into the top two of their group here. PSV missing a lot of players, as we mentioned at the outset, with coronavirus and other injury concerns. They're going to be playing a lot of young players, 
a lot of players who aren't used to being in the first team. So it's an opportunity for Pauk. Pauk, as we've talked about, have a new manager who comes from their organization, but he has just been promoted to their first team manager. They beat Panetolikos 3-1 in a game that I caught a little bit of where they were actually drawing with them for a majority of the second half and then got two goals. Uh, I believe one was a nice free kick from Nanua and the next one was a Cholak penalty to get his first goal of the season for Pauk. So they finished that one 3-1, obviously get the points that they want. Solid game overall for Pablo Garcia as his, as his first game, but Pauk are going to need to now do it in Europe against a Dutch team with a lot of reputation. So far in Europe, Pauk have had a 19.5% positional attack efficiency, but the good news is they have actually been doing better than their opponents so far. Their opponents have 17% positional attack efficiency. So they're defending well. Now, interesting note, obviously new coach oftentimes means a new system. Pauk rolled out a more traditional four at the back formation over the weekend, I believe with Musa Wage as the right back. So that's something interesting to keep an eye on. As we've talked about, Pauk not bad defensively so far in Europe, but their attack has been particularly toothless since the beginning of the group stage. 15% positional efficiency against Ammonia, and then only 11% against Granada in a game that they got a draw out of. Worse than their opponents on both points there in terms of positional attack efficiency. Uh, their strongest asset is still on the counter here. On the counter, they're looking at 45.5% efficiency, and their opponents are only on 25.1%. Now, obviously, everyone's going to be a little bit better on the counter than in regular play, but the fact that Pauk are that much better than their opponents is a good thing. Additionally, Pauk have shown a tendency to leave a hole in the midfield. Sometimes this leaves their midfielder, El Kaduri, isolated in there, and he has to work basically for two players to make up for that. So that's something to look out for for Pauk. It's going to be hard to predict this on both sides. We have a PSV team that just has a bunch of holes in it, and we have a Pauk team with a new system. We haven't seen this team under this manager play in Europe yet. That being said, do we have some predictions for this one? I think I'm going to start. And you know what? I'm going to go optimistic here. Lambro. I'm going to do it. I'm going to say a 1-1 draw for Pauk. And I'm going to say Thomas Morg scores the goal. Uh, also, just a quick comment. Pablo Garcia, I don't. I, I looked up some old clips of him as a player. Like, he was so dirty as a player. I don't know if you guys have seen some of the old clips of him, like, elbowing guys in the face, two-footed tackles, like, in derbies. He used to get sent off all the time. It's actually quite funny. Quite an aggressive player. I, I don't know. I'm th I'm thinking, actually, you know, I'm just going it, it, to, it's a, the end of a long week. I'm trying to be positive here. Positive energy. I, mean, I think Pais Vave missing 13 players. I'm going to go 2-1 Pauk. And I'm going to say, wow. I'm going to say more. Is, is, more. God, I, more. I'm like, I, what is with me in names, guys? Okay. You guys got to get the Mork. German accent. Mork. And uh, then I'm going to say... I'll say Nanua again with another free kick. That was a beauty this weekend. So. It was. Well taken. So that, to clarify, uh, this game will be played in Tumba, so... Yes. Yeah, it's going to be a sold-out game. 2-1. Fans going to be extra loud. <laughs> you mean the, the fans that won't be allowed in the stadium? Not, not like this. <laughs> As Greece is in second lockdown. Yeah. Literally, this man like couldn't resist a snarky comment <laughs> even after predicting they were going to win. Anyway, Adi, yeah. what's your thought? So... I mean, for me, it's it's weird because like you basically can throw the data out the window because you know right. Garcia is a completely different different type of coach. I like him technically better. 
Uh, I think he is a better coach, to be honest with you. I think for Falk, this is a, you know, a good thing. They look pretty compact. And, you know, I think he's tightening the hole in the midfield. That that hole in the midfield is rough when Kadori isn't doing all the running like we brought up earlier. So, I mean, for me, they should win. But it is Balk, and it's Balk in Europe. So I don't think it's going to be a very goal-heavy game, uh, especially since PSV missing 13 players. I don't think they're going to be playing as up-tempo as maybe they're used to. Uh, you know, I think it's going to be on – the onus might be on Balk. And we know they're not that good in open play and possession. They need to counter. So I think it's going to be an ugly game. It's going to be like Ammonia. I think it'll be very ugly. And I think they eke out a one nothing win. Small note about PSV for our American or Greek-American listeners. Uh, PSV do actually have an American player, Richie Ledesma, who made his first team debut as a result of all the injuries. And he, I think he's also been called up to the U.S. national team for the first time. So that'll be an interesting player that we might see against Pauk. Moving on to Ike versus Zorya Luhansk, a Ukrainian side. This is a team that admittedly we don't know a whole lot about. They're not off to the brightest start in the Ukrainian league or in Europe. Right now, that uh, group is on 6-6-0-0. So Leicester and Braga have won their first two games, and Ike and Luhansk have lost them. So this is a team that after a couple tough losses for Ike, we might be able to expect them to beat. I'm personally pretty optimistic about this, even not knowing a lot about the Ukrainian side. So I'm going to say 2-0 to Ike here. What do you think, Lambro? Yeah, let's hope that they can finally get a win in Europe. Let's say 3-0, Nelson Oliveira with a goal, Marco Livaya with another, and Kareem Ansarifard with another. A nice win for Ike and a nice win for the coefficient. For me, there's context. Uh, Zoria Luhansk, they... they they can possess, but they seem to have a similar issue like Olympiacos, and they're like a second-half team. They're conceding most of these goals in the first half of these games. So I think I can get an early goal here, maybe even two, and kind of run it out in the end. I'm not super convinced with Ike's defense, so I think I can get go up 2-1 here. I feel like they'll get two goals in the first half and then eat one, and then it'll be like one of those thrillers at the end where it looks like they're going to concede. Maybe they hold out. So I'm going to go 2-1 Ike with this. I'll be a lot more positive if Simoas is back in the midfield. Even though Shakov looks pretty decent going forward, I like Simoas as the, as the ball winner there. But for the love of God, I, I, I don't want to see Leviah out on the wing again. He's useless out there. You know, play him up front. Even if it has to, he has to run with the 3-5-2 again. You know, I mean, you're he Levi is talented. Like we make fun of him all the time, but he is one of their more talented players. You know, they're still without Levi Garcia. They're going to be resting on his skill, Oliveira and Madalos, who's having a pretty good year to start with uh, for Ike. They're they're going to need the creativity of those guys to really get things rolling. So uh, I, they can do it. Uh, I mean, I am expecting, I'm expecting them to win. The, the game script is positive in their favor, just like with Bach. Let's see if they can do it. This is a good opportunity to pick up points for the coefficient and for both of these teams to kind of get a win and really fight for a top two spot in their groups. All right. Really positive week of uh, predictions for us, guys. Good job. Look at us. Uh, a couple more small Super League notes that I want to make a note of. Uh, some matches that were made up in the midweek. Michael Vecini, some good results for you for Larissa. Picking up a 2-1 victory 
in their midweek game against Yanina. Uh, Dimitrios Pinakas, a 19-year-old attacker, scored two goals, and he's had three goals in his last two games, including the Yanina game. Got one in the 85th minute to take the lead. And Panathinaikos picked up another win. So they're starting to find a little bit of form, potentially, against Apollon Smyrnas with a 1-0 victory. So a couple of our former guests probably happy about those results as well. Yeah, Peter, Panathinaikos are finally starting to pick up some results coming into our derby in a few weeks. It's going to be interesting. And my positivity may be chalked up to me being on two hours of sleep going a bit crazy right now. So <laughs> could be that could be the source of it and the end of a long election season, you know. It's uh, not over yet, Lambro. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> over. It's all, I can see the finish line, so we'll see. Uh, let's not talk about that. Lambro, I would say get some rest, but I know you're not going to be resting until uh, we figure out who the next president is actually going to be. We're running just about to the end, everyone. So thank you all very much for listening, especially if you've made it this far. Continue to interact with us on social media. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Gate7INTL. Uh, continue to leave a review. And we always appreciate feedback. So with that, we will be back with Bob Beans on Monday. And enjoy the Europa League fixtures on Thursday afternoon. Good luck to Ike and Pauk. And we will see you very soon.